Chapter One of El Dorado by Baroness Orsi. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in June two thousand and seven. Chapter One, in the Théâtre National. And yet people found the opportunity to amuse themselves, to dance and to go to the theatre, to enjoy music and open-air cafés and promenades at the Palais Royal. New fashions in dress made their appearance, milliners produced fresh creations, and jewellers were not idle. A grim sense of humour, born of the very intensity of ever-present danger, had dubbed the cut of certain tunics tête tranche, or a favourite ragout was called a à la guillotine. On three evenings only, during the past memorable four and a half years, did the theatres close their doors and these evenings were the ones immediately following that terrible second of September, the day of the butchery outside the Abbé prison, when Paris herself was aghast with horror, and the cries of the massacred might have drowned the cause of the audience whose hands upraised for plaudits would still be dripping with blood. On all other evenings of these same four and a half years, the theatres in the Rue de Richelieu, in the Palais Royal, the Luxembourg, and others, had raised their curtains and taken money at their doors. The same audience that earlier in the day had whiled away the time by witnessing the ever-recurrent dramas of the Place de la Révolution, assembled here in the evenings, in filled stalls, boxes, and tears, laughing over the satires of Voltaire, or weeping over the sentimental tragedies of persecuted Romeos and innocent Juliets. Death knocked at so many doors these days. He was so constant a guest in the houses of relatives and friends, that those who had merely shaken him by the hand— those on whom he had smiled, and whom he, still smiling, had passed indulgently by, looked on him with that subtle contempt born of familiarity, shrugged their shoulders at his passage, and envisaged his probable visit on the morrow with light-hearted indifference. Paris, despite the horrors that had stained her walls, had remained a city of pleasure, and the knife of the guillotine did scarce descend more often than did the drop-scenes on the stage. On this bitterly cold evening of the twenty-seventh Nivoz, in the second year of the Republic, or as we of the old style still persist in calling it, the 16th of January, 1794, the auditorium of the Théâtre National was filled with a very brilliant company. The appearance of a favourite actress in the part of one of Molière's volatile heroines had brought pleasure-loving Paris to witness this revival of Le Misanthrope, with new scenery, dresses, and the aforesaid charming actress to add piquancy to the master's mordant wit. The Moniteur, which so impartially chronicles the events of those times, tells us under that date that the Assembly of the Convention voted on that same day a new law, giving fuller power to its spies, enabling them to effect domiciliary searches at their discretion, without previous reference to the Committee of General Security, authorising them to proceed against all enemies of public happiness, to send them to prison at their own discretion, and assuring them the sum of thirty-five livres, quote, for every piece of game thus beaten up for the guillotine. Under that same date, the Moniteur also puts it on record that the Théâtre National was filled to its utmost capacity for the revival of the late citoyen Molière's comedy. The Assembly of the Convention, having voted the new law which placed the lives of thousands at the mercy of a few human bloodhounds, adjourned its sitting and proceeded to the Rue de Richelieu. Already the house was full when the fathers of the people made their way to the seats which had been reserved for them. An awed hush descended on the throng, as one by one the men whose very names inspired horror and dread filed in through the narrow gangways of the stalls, or took their places in the tiny boxes around. Citizen Robespierre's neatly wigged head soon appeared in one of these, his bosom friend Saint-Just was with him, and also his sister Charlotte. 
Danton, like a big, shaggy-coated lion, elbowed his way into the stalls, whilst Sauterre, the handsome butcher and idol of the people of Paris, was loudly acclaimed as his huge frame, gorgeously clad in the uniform of the National Guard, was sighted on one of the tiers above. The public in the parterre and in the galleries whispered excitedly. The awe-inspiring names flew about hither and thither on the wings of the overheated air. Women craned their necks to catch sight of heads which mayhap on the morrow would roll into the gruesome basket at the foot of the guillotine. In one of the tiny avant-scene boxes two men had taken their seats long before the bulk of the audience had begun to assemble in the house. The inside of the box was in complete darkness, and the narrow opening which allowed but a sorry view of one side of the stage helped to conceal rather than display the occupants. The younger one of these two men appeared to be something of a stranger in Paris, for as the public men and the well-known members of the government began to arrive, he often turned to his companion for information regarding these notorious personalities. "'Tell me de Bats,' he said, calling the other's attention to a group of men who had just entered the house. "'That creature there in the green coat, with his hand up to his face now, who is he?' "'Where? Which do you mean?' "'There. He looks this way now, and he has a playbill in his hand.' The man with the protruding chin and the convex forehead, a face like a marmoset and eyes like a jackal. What? The other leaned over the edge of the box, and his small, restless eyes wandered over the now closely packed auditorium. Oh, he said, as soon as he recognized the face which his friend had pointed out to him, that is citizen Fouquier-Tonville. The public prosecutor? Himself. And Heron is the man next to him. Heron? said the younger man, interrogatively. Yes, he is chief agent to the Committee of General Security now. What does that mean? Both leaned back in their chairs, and their sombrely clad figures were once more merged in the gloom of the narrow box. Instinctively, since the name of the public prosecutor had been mentioned between them, they had allowed their voices to sink to a whisper. The older man, a stoutish, florid-looking individual, with small, keen eyes, and a skin pitted with smallpox, shrugged his shoulders at his friend's question, and then said with an air of contemptuous indifference, it means, my good Saint-Just, that these two men whom you see down there, calmly conning the programme of this evening's entertainment, and preparing to enjoy themselves to-night in the company of the late Monsieur de Molière, are two hell-hounds as powerful as they are cunning. Yes, yes, said Saint-Just, and much against his will a slight shudder ran through his slim figure as he spoke. Fouquier-Tonville I know. I know his cunning, and I know his power. But the other? The other? retorted de Batz lightly. Heron? Let me tell you, my friend, that even the might and lust of that damned public prosecutor pale before the power of Heron. But how? I do not understand. Ah, you have been in England so long, you lucky dog, and though no doubt the main plot of our hideous tragedy has reached your ken, you have no cognizance of the actors who play the principal parts on this arena flooded with blood and carpeted with hate. They come and go, these actors, my good Saint-Just. They come and go. Marat is already the man of yesterday. Robespierre is the man of to-morrow. To-day we still have Danton and Fouquier-Tonville. We still have Père Duchesne, and your own good cousin Antoine Saint-Just. But Heron and his like are with us always. Spies, of course. Spies, assented the other. And what spies? Were you present at the sitting of the Assembly to-day? I was. I heard the new decree which already has passed into law. Ah, I tell you, friend, that we do not let the grass grow under our feet these days. Robespierre wakes up one morning with a whim, 
by the afternoon that whim has become law, passed by a servile body of men too terrified to run counter to his will, fearful lest they be accused of moderation or of humanity, the greatest crimes that can be committed nowadays. But Danton? Ah, Danton! He would wish to stem the tide that his own passions have let loose, to muzzle the raging beasts whose fangs he himself has sharpened. I told you that Danton is still the man of to-day. To-morrow he will be accused of moderation. Danton and moderation! Ye gods! Eh? Danton, who thought the guillotine too slow in its work, and armed thirty soldiers with swords, so that thirty heads might fall at one and the same time. Danton, friend, will perish to-morrow, accused of treachery against the revolution, of moderation towards her enemies, and curs like Heron will feast on the blood of lions like Danton and his crowd. He paused a moment, for he dared not raise his voice, and his whispers were being drowned by the noise in the auditorium. The curtain, timed to be raised at eight o'clock, was still down, though it was close on half-past, and the public was growing impatient. There was loud stamping of feet, and a few shrill whistles of disapproval proceeded from the gallery. "'If Heron gets impatient,' said de Batz lightly, when the noise had momentarily subsided, "'the manager of this theatre, and mayhap his leading actor and actress, will spend an unpleasant day to-morrow.' "'Always Heron,' said Saint-Just, with a contemptuous smile. "'Yes, my friend,' rejoined the other imperturbably, "'always Heron. And he has even obtained a longer lease of existence this afternoon. By the new decree?' "'Yes.' the new decree. The agents of the Committee of General Security, of whom Heron is the chief, have from to-day powers of domiciliary search. They have full powers to proceed against all enemies of public welfare. Isn't that beautifully vague? And they have absolute discretion. Every one may become an enemy of public welfare, either by spending too much money, or by spending too little, by laughing to-day, or crying to-morrow, by mourning for one dead relative, or rejoicing over the execution of another. He may be a bad example to the public by the cleanliness of his person, or by the filth upon his clothes. He may offend by walking to-day, and by riding in a carriage next week. The agents of the Committee of General Security shall alone decide what constitutes enmity against public welfare. All prisons are to be opened at their bidding to receive those whom they choose to denounce. They have henceforth the right to examine prisoners privately and without witnesses, and to send them to trial without further warrants. Their duty is clear. They must beat up game for the guillotine. Thus is the decree worded. They must furnish the public prosecutor with work to do, the tribunals with victims to condemn, the Place de la Révolution with death scenes to amuse the people, and for their work they will be rewarded thirty-five livres for every head that falls under the guillotine. Ah! If Heron and his like and his myrmidons work hard and well, they can make a comfortable income of four or five thousand livres a week. We are getting on, friend Saint-Just. We are getting on." He had not raised his voice while he spoke, nor in the recounting of such inhuman monstrosity, such vile and bloodthirsty conspiracy against the liberty, the dignity, the very life of an entire nation, did he appear to feel the slightest indignation. Rather did a tone of amusement, and even of triumph, strike through his speech. And now he laughed good-humouredly, like an indulgent parent who is watching the naturally cruel antics of a spoilt boy. Then from this hell let loose upon earth, exclaimed Saint-Just hotly, must we rescue those who refuse to ride upon this tide of blood. His cheeks were glowing, his eyes sparkled with enthusiasm. He looked very young and very eager. Armand Saint-Just, the brother of Lady Blakeney, had something of the refined beauty of his lovely sister. But the features, though manly, 
had not the latent strength expressed in them which characterized every line of Marguerite's exquisite face. The forehead suggested a dreamer rather than a thinker. The blue-gray eyes were those of an idealist rather than a man of action. De Batz's keen, piercing eyes had no doubt noted this, even whilst he gazed at his young friend with that same look of good-humoured indulgence which seemed habitual to him. "'We have to think of the future, my good Saint-Just,' he said after a slight pause, and speaking slowly and decisively, like a father rebuking a hot-headed child. "'Not of the present. What are a few lives worth beside the great principles which we have at stake?' "'The restoration of the monarchy, I know,' retorted Saint-Just, still unsobered. "'But in the meanwhile—in the meanwhile,' rejoined de Batz, earnestly, "'every victim to the lust of these men is a step towards the restoration of law and order—that is to say, of the monarchy. It is only through these violent excesses perpetrated in its name that the nation will realise how it is being fooled by a set of men who have only their own power and their own advancement in view.' and who imagine that the only way to that power is over the dead bodies of those who stand in their way. Once the nation is sickened by these orgies of ambition and of hate, it will turn against these savage brutes, and gladly acclaim the restoration of all that they are striving to destroy. This is our only hope for the future, and believe me, friend, that every head snatched from the guillotine by your romantic hero, the Scarlet Pimpernel, is a stone laid for the consolidation of this infamous republic. I'll not believe it protested Saint-Just emphatically. De Batz, with a gesture of contempt indicative also of complete self-satisfaction and unalterable self-belief, shrugged his broad shoulders. His short fat fingers, covered with rings, beat a tattoo upon the ledge of the box. Obviously he was ready with a retort. His young friend's attitude irritated even more than it amused him. But he said nothing for the moment, waiting while the traditional three knocks on the floor of the stage proclaimed the rise of the curtain. The growing impatience of the audience subsided as if by magic at the welcome call. Everybody settled down again comfortably in their seats. They gave up the contemplation of the fathers of the people, and turned their full attention to the actors on the boards. End of chapter 1